Hi, everyone, and welcome tonight. Welcome to the Dr. Bill Telephone Education Series. My name is Sue Parkers Trafasi, and I'm Director of Child Development Services at Braille Institute. Dr. Bill Tinkeshida is the Chief of Optometric Services for the Center for the Partially Sighted here in Los Angeles, as well as Consulting Director of Low Vision Training at Braille Institute. And tonight, our very special guest is renowned pediatric neuro-ophthalmologist, Dr. Mark Borchardt of the Vision Center at Children's Hospital Los Angeles. So without further interruption, I'm going to turn this over to Dr. Tekashida and Dr. Borchardt for a great discussion. Thank you. Well, thank you very much, Sue, and thank you so much, Dr. Borchardt, after a long day's work for coming to share your time and expertise. Uh, we really appreciate it. Uh, thank you for that generous introdu introduction. <laughs> well, thank you. As, as you could already tell from hearing, you know, we have people from throughout the United States. I mean, this is really amazing how the word has spread that you're going to be talking about optic nerve hypoplasia this evening. And for a lot of the people who are here this evening, many of them may not really be familiar with what is a neuro-ophthalmologist. Can you describe what is a neuro-ophthalmologist and what is it that really differentiates what a neuro-ophthalmologist does as compared to a conventional ophthalmologist? Conventional ophthalmologists tend to deal with vision problems that are related to the eyeball itself, that is, the problems with the light passing into the eye or problems with the cornea or the retina or something like that. Neuro-ophthalmologists deal with vision problems that are related to the brain, and uh, that may be vision problems that are due to optic nerve diseases. We consider the optic nerve, which connects the eye to the brain, to be part of the brain, or to the other vision centers of the brain itself. And also, we deal with um, eye movement problems that are caused by neurologic disease. So... People enter neuro-ophthalmology either through the field of ophthalmology or through the field of neurology, and then they do um, fellowship training, usually for two years afterwards, um, uh, in the subspecialty of neuro-ophthalmology. Now, where did you uh, do your fellowship at? I did my fellowship at Harvard in Boston, Massachusetts. Amazing credentials. It's amazing credentials, but I I would just listen to the news this evening, and I, I couldn't believe it. This is a little bit off the topic, but for undergraduate schools, Harvard came in second this year, and uh, Princeton was ranked number one. But I'm certain that, uh, as we all know, in the field of ophthalmology, Harvard is uh, number one. You know, a lot of you who are listening may not be familiar with Dr. Mark Borchert because of the fact that you're living in different states uh, across the country here. But Dr. Borchert truly is a world-renowned pediatric neuro-ophthalmologist, and he has been studying optic nerve hypoplasia for, I would I would say, your study's been going on for 25 years? Would, would it be longer than that? Uh, let's see. It would be a little over 20 years, about 22 years. Wow. And, and can you tell all of the listeners, what is actually the definition of optic nerve hypoplasia? <laughs> well, that's, that's a tough question because I'm not sure I've actually heard it defined. Um, the It really is a problem with underdevelopment of the optic nerve. That is, the eyeball itself is totally normal and the retina is totally normal with the exception of the cells of the retina that actually send the fibers down the optic nerve to the brain. And so we define it based on its appearance, actually. When we look inside the eye, we can see that the nerve does not contain the full contingent of fibers that it needs uh, to have normal vision, and um, it's really an appearance thing more than anything else. So um, it's a congenital, that is, you're born with it, problem that um, does not appear to be hereditary, that is, it doesn't appear to be genetic, and it um, 
affects primarily the optic nerve without any effects on the eyeball itself, but there may be other nerve fibers in other parts of the brain that are also missing. And one of the things that I learned from listening to one of your lectures years ago that really, really has stuck with me, and I've really been impressed upon this, is that you stated that optic nerve hypoplasia, these children who do have optic nerve hypoplasia and later grow on to be adults, it is not just only a vision problem. In many ways, you stated this is almost a, a form of a syndrome. And can you describe about some of the other features and findings that are associated with optic nerve hypoplasia? Absolutely. It turns out that really probably 80% of children who have optic nerve hypoplasia have other neurological problems. And the risk for those other neurologic problems is greater in those children who have optic nerve hypoplasia in both eyes than in one eye. So about 85% of children who have optic nerve hypoplasia have it in both eyes, and those who have it in both eyes are at higher risk for having other neurological, have about twice the risk of having other neurologic problems as the children who have it in only one eye. And the problems are pretty, um, pretty standard. In other words, there's a spectrum of problems that we tend to see with these kids, and children may have individual components of that spectrum uh, associated with it. In other words, they may not have everything. In fact, few of them are affected by everything. But um, the things that they are, are affected by are pretty uh, common among those kids with optic neuroplasia. And so these things, the, the main thing we see with these kids is problems with the part of the brain called the hypothalamus. Hypothalamus is, sits at the base of the brain right above where the optic nerve is attached to the brain. And it is a very primitive part of the brain. In fact, it's not a part of the brain that we generally think of as being involved in any sort of thought processes or motor skills or speech or anything like that. It's a part of the brain that controls basic body functions. So it's a part of the brain that, for instance, is responsible for controlling our hunger or our thirst or our uh, metabolic rate. It's responsible for controlling blood pressure and blood sugar and really basic things. And one of the main ways it controls the body functions is through the pituitary gland. The pituitary gland sits underneath the optic nerves and is connected to the hypothalamus, which sits above the optic nerves, by a stalk that trans and down this stalk information is transmitted to the pituitary gland, either through blood uh, vessels from the hypothalamus that that go down the stalk to the pituitary gland, or through the neurons in the stalk itself that transmit hormones to and and chemicals to the um, pituitary gland that then tells the pituitary gland whether or not to release hormones that go into the bloodstream and then control other parts of the body, either control other glands in the body, such as your sex organs or your uh, adrenal gland or your thyroid gland, or directly to hormones are released that directly control things like growth or body fat content or muscle content, that sort of thing. So uh, this is a very important gland, and about 70 to 75% of children with optic nerve hypoplasia have poor control of the pituitary gland because their hypothalamus isn't working right. So that's the most common thing we see in these kids, but there are many other things. So, for instance, many children, a very high percentage of children, have sleep irregularities. They either don't, they can't adjust their clock, their di- what we call their diurnal clock, um, to, to day and 
night cycle. And so um, they may sleep all day and be up all night, or they may sleep very regularly in 15 or 20-minute spurts. Some kids sleep for two or three hours at a time and then are up for two or three hours, and as you can imagine, this is pretty disruptive to the family. There are many, many other problems these kids have uh, due to the hypothalamus not working. Uh, hunger and thirst problems are really uh, paramount. They, uh, there are many kids who either don't know when they're satiated and so they keep eating and gain weight, or there are kids who net won't eat at all or will only eat certain kinds of food and, uh, and, and may, in fact, become emaciated. So we see all types. We see kids who can't stop drinking even though they don't need anything to drink. There are other problems that are also commonly associated that are due to other parts of the brain that are dysfunctional. So even though the hypothalamus is the part of the brain that is the most commonly involved, there are other parts of the brain that may also be affected. And so we commonly see kids with um, communication problems, some of them so severe that they're really fall on the autism spectrum. Um, we see um, kids with um, motor problems and are diagnosed with cerebral palsy. We see kids with seizures. Um, so about 10% of kids with optic nerve fibrillation have a seizure disorder. Um, and then we see problems with uh, in some children with the flow of uh, fluid, spinal fluid, throughout the brain, which causes um, hydrocephalus or high pressure in the head, and that in, its, in turn causes other neurologic problems. So with, you know, broad strokes, that's sort of the um, spectrum of problems that we see associated with optic hypoplasia. Now, with a lot of these particular types of abnormal findings, um, can you describe some of the treatments and I think this is also why it's so important that a child who does have optic nerve hypoplasia really needs to see a, a physician, a, a neuro-ophthalmologist or endocrinologist, to very carefully look at these particular findings and to provide treatment. Yes. Well, and that's a, I think that's a key point that, you know, people don't realize when you, when you're child is diagnosed with optic nerve hypoplasia, the first and foremost thing that people are concerned about is the child's vision. And um, they, and sometimes uh, for the physician, that's the main problem that they're concerned about. And, and unfortunately, the other problems are discounted because we are, as, as eye care professionals, we are you know, so concerned about the vision that we sometimes forget that we have to be focusing on the entire child. And optic nerve hypoplasia is such a disease where the other problems can be far more devastating than the vision. And you mentioned the endocrinologist. I think the endocrinologist is probably the most important doctor for most of the children. Once again, not all children have hormone problems. Not all children have their pituitary gland dysfunctional. But uh, the majority of them, and if you have a child with uh, optic nerve hypoplasia, they're at high risk for having hormone problems. And these can be life-threatening. And treating them uh, is critical, and that needs to be done by an endocrinologist. Now, when you mentioned that the optic nerve, it does contain many, many fibers in there, and I know that that is something that is often not understood by parents, that the optic nerve is not just a single cable, like your cable that goes into your cable television, but it really consists of thousands and thousands and thousands of fibers. Can you describe um, the anatomy of the optic nerve? And when children do have optic nerve hypoplasia, is this something that these particular nerve fibers 
may ever develop again? That's a very good question. So it's actually the average number of fibers that most people are born with is 1.2 million in each optic nerve. And these fibers, 99% of them all go to the same place in the brain. And each one represents the image that's being formed by light striking one microscopic part of the retina. And um, together, the ensemble of fibers put together and, and they put together an image very analogous to the pixels from a digital camera putting together the image on your TV screen. And um, so our eye has, you know, higher resolution than digital cameras. We can, in other words, we can have very many pixels uh, that we uh, put together to create uh, the image that we see in our brain. And But there are fibers that all have different functions as well. So there are some fibers that are carry information that's, for instance, predominantly motion information. And other fibers that carry information that uh, predominantly fine vision, and others that are more for sensing contrast, and others that are color and so forth. And um, and so there are many fibers performing different, carrying different information going to the exact same pinpoint location that need to all come together and connect to neighboring neurons in the brain in order to for those neighboring neurons to then put together a picture that has meaning. Um, these fibers all develop very, very early in pregnancy. In other words, these are some of the most critical parts of brain formation. And in fact, the the Primitive eyeball is one of the very first things we see developing in the embryo. Um, and that's true for all mammals. Now, the, uh, and not, actually not just all mammals, all vertebrates virtually. Now, the, um, the fiber, the, the early, very early in development, the there's a stalk that connects the early eyeball to the brain, and they, that's the pathway that the fibers from the developing retina travel down to get to the brain. And they start; those fibers from the developing retina tra start traveling down that stalk to get to the brain at about the seventh week of pregnancy. So often it's before women even know they're pregnant. And then, and they grow very fast, and they proliferate very quickly, so that, and they reach the uh, the brain, and finally start making connections with the brain about four weeks later, at about the eleventh week of pregnancy. And then they keep growing and making connections until about the sixteenth week of pregnancy. And so, by the sixteenth week of pregnancy, each optic nerve has. 3.5 million fibers in it. And at the 16th week of pregnancy, you start losing fibers. And you lose them. You don't get any more after the 16th week of pregnancy. That's it. The, the eyeball stops producing optic nerve fibers at that point in time. And you start to um, lose the ones that either didn't make ex ex exactly precise connections or they're outcompeted somehow for their connections by another one. And so, in fact, then by birth, when you have 1.2 million, you've lost from the 16th week of pregnancy till the time of birth 70% of the fibers that you had. And currently, we don't have any way to 
stop that loss of fibers, and we have no way to get new ones to grow. And it's a very interesting problem because um, if you take some more primitive vertebrates, such as a salamander, you can cut their optic nerve completely and remove the fibers, and they will grow new ones. And the, the salamander does that by turning on some of the stem cells within its retina, and which is under genetic control, and turning on these stem cells in the retina that exist in the retina and making them turn into ganglion cells and making them grow new fibers, and the fibers grow, and the new fibers grow to exactly the right spot that they're supposed to. It's like a miracle. But the interesting thing is higher mammals, higher vertebrates, mammals and humans also have stem cells in their retina, and they exist well into adulthood and probably into your 90s or 100-year-old age, and yet our stem cells will not turn on in our retinas and generate new optic nerve fibers when our optic nerve is damaged or doesn't form properly. Um, and that's, there's probably good reason for that. Uh, uncontrolled growth of cells that are not carefully controlled results in cancers. And so we don't, you know, there's probably good evolutionary reason for that. And so we do currently, humans and, and mammals, do have no way of regenerating their optic nerve beyond the 16th week of pregnancy. But the genetic potential is there. We just have to learn how to turn the genes on that make the stem cells turn into new optic nerve fibers. And uh, that's where the most I think the most promising research is uh, for treating this and uh, similar diseases that are result in damage to the optic nerve. This is really, really also encouraging because I know that there are many times parents will ask, can't we inject stem cells into the optic nerve region of my child's eye and can't these stem cells grow these fibers? But in, in reality, there are stem cells in the eyes of, of the children and the adults we see with optic nerve hypoplasia, right. and it's a matter of triggering those stem cells right. to develop the fibers. Right. They, those stem cells, the stem cells are already there. There's no sense in injecting new stem cells because you've already got your own stem cells there. If you inject somebody else's stem cells there, your body's just going to kill them because it's not yours. And even if you could control the mechanism that your body uses to kill those foreign cells, those cells aren't going to turn on and become ganglion cells and optic nerve fibers any more than your own native stem cells are. It needs the right environment and the right chemicals that turn on those cells to make them work. And if we could do it with foreign stem cells, that is stem cells that we take from somebody else, we could do it with our own and it would be far safer. So we need to work on figuring out how to make our own stem cells turn on, not worry about injecting foreign cells into our own bodies. That's just silly. And I think this is a prime illustration as to why it's really important for any of the parents or people with optic nerve hypoplasia who are listening to you this evening to not go to some of these other countries for stem cell treatments. I hear people constantly where they are calling me and they will ask me if I know of a particular clinic that they could go to in Europe or Asia and receive injections of stem cells. Well, I can tell you there is a uh, paper coming out, I think, this month in the Journal of the American Association of Pediatric Ophthalmology and Strabismus that we're publishing that where we, in a masked fashion, looked at kids who got the stem cell treatment and those who didn't get the stem cell treatment and were matched by an age and sex and severity of their vision impairment and, and all these other things and monitored 
whether there's any change in their optic nerve, whether there's any change in their pupillary function, whether there's any change in their vision, and the answer is it didn't make any difference. The kids, they all got all got better. The kids who, who didn't get stem cells, they got better just as much as the kids who did get stem cells. And that will be coming out shortly in the press, and I'm sure it will be, make a big hullabaloo. But that's, but that's well, what the facts are. Well, that's true. Those are the facts, and that's what we have to learn from this. And I know that it's difficult to say precisely, but do you, do you have a, a hypothesis of what does it take to activate the stem cells that the child or the adult with optic nerve hypoplasia has in their own eyes? What does it take to activate those stem cells to generate nerve fibers like in the salamander? Is it a genetic code or... Do you have any hypothesis? Well, everything is under genetic control. When a cell is developed and matures or differentiates into a different kind of cell, an embryonic cell, for instance, turns into a decides to turn into a muscle cell or a brain cell, that is all under genetic control, and different genes have to turn on and off in order for that sequence of events to happen of differentiation. And we are just in the process of understanding what those genes are and what the signals are from neighboring cells that tell that cell to do something. And so much of it is the signals that come from the neighboring cells, that is what we call the microenvironment, that uh, uh, tells the, which genes turn on and which genes turn off so that the appropriate differentiation can occur. Now, this is something that is being intensely studied around the world. We're doing research on it at Children's Hospital Los Angeles. We're growing embryonic retinas from, we're taking human retinal uh, stem cells and, and growing new retinas from them. And we're trying to figure out what are those, genes that turn on and turn off when as each different type of cell within the new retinas develop and and what are those signals that are working to make it happen and that's where we once we figure out those sequence of events and what the chemical messengers are in the microenvironment then we'll be able to control it in the same way that a salamander can control his own regeneration of the optic nerve and uh and by the way, people are studying salamanders too to figure out how they do it, you know, and uh, uh, which is uh, because they have largely the same genes that we do. Well, this research is really very, very exciting, and it it sounds like in many ways we're very close, but yet we're far away. But uh, how how is this particular type of research funded? Are, are there basically grants that are provided by the federal government or are there other ways where, for example, Children's Hospital Los Angeles, do you accept donations or is there a campaign specifically for this research on optic nerve hypoplasia? Um, most of the, this research at our institution and at others is um, funded through the National Institutes of Health of the federal government, which is, of course, having its budget cut practically annually. And so the funding is getting less and less from the federal government. And more and more we're turning to private foundations uh, to compete with other institutions and other research projects to try and get money uh, to fund this stuff. We do, and most uh, research institutions such as ours accept money uh, from individual donors, and uh, we certainly have mechanisms for um, earmarking that money so that it's used specifically for that the type of research that the donor wants, assuming we have a program for that type of research. And so, yes, if, if for us, we have uh, optic nerve hypoplasia, research fund uh, that people can contribute to. We also have a retinal stem cell research fund that people can contribute to, and money put into either one of those funds 
when it's used for retinal stem cell research for optic nerve hypoplasia is can be used for that. So, um, uh, and that, and we have that going on right now. And so, um, it, it's just the problem is that um, people are frustrated. They want results now. There's a uh, misconception out there that's promulgated by the media that these things, this research can be done quickly. And um, it can't. It's a very laborious uh, thing. I always laugh when I see these TV crime shows like CSI and so forth. <laughs> I see them get, they, they take DNA from a, a sample found on a rug someplace and they stick it in a machine and they come out with the, some, they identify the person within 30 minutes and that, that's just <laughs> That's not true. I mean, that is weeks of work just to do that. And so to do the kind of things that we're doing, which is really cutting edge, um, really takes a long time, and you have to make sure you get it right. Ultimately, this is something that we want to use for treatment in real people, and we'd better have it right when we do it. We do not want to turn on somebody's stem cells and have them turn into a cancer which is the big risk. And uh, so we, uh, you know, we don't want to kill somebody in order to restore their vision. That's just not appropriate. So we have to be very careful. Now, one of the things that um, uh, we do observe at, at our center, when we see so many children with optic nerve hypoplasia, and the range of their vision could really vary quite a bit. And is that basically related to which optic nerve fibers did not grow, for example. Some kids don't have color vision. Other kids don't have peripheral vision. And other kids don't have detailed vision. And as you described earlier, there are bundles of fibers that carry that type of information. So if that bundle is not there, that would be the child who may not have clear vision. Is that the best way to describe it? I think that's pretty accurate. I, I think that I think of it more as I think in terms of the um, detail of vision and the um, extent of vision. That is the uh, how how much area you can see. It really has more to do with the location that those fibers came from in the retina that determine the quality of detail vision and the overall area of your vision. So there are many kids, for instance, who will only, they'll, they'll turn their, their eyes way to the side to look at something. They won't look right at it, they'll look way to the side. And that's because they only have a small area of peripheral vision that they can see. And so they have to line up this side of their eyeball with what they're trying to see. Um, and uh, and uh, other kids, they don't do that at all, but they've got just very markedly diminished vision everywhere, um, and um, it really has to do with uh, where they come from and which fibers carrying which information are missing. And I believe that you could get any combination of these. I don't think in this condition um, there's any specific type of loss of fibers, and I don't think that any specific type of fiber loss is related to what the associated problems are that you may have with this. So um, it, it almost seems random in which fibers are lost, uh, and which is why we have this huge variability in the vision. And the interesting thing is the vision that the child has has nothing to do with their risk for other problems. In other words, we have kids with good vision, you know, 2040 vision, driving vision, um, who end up have many of the other problems that are associated with optic nerve hypoplasia. Um, it's pretty amazing. And one of the other things that we, we do um, measure, very interesting, with a lot of the children with ONH, optic nerve hypoplasia, is that when they come in a year or maybe two or three years later, 
we actually measure their visual acuity, what they could read on the eye chart, as improving. Now, we know that these kids, they did not develop or grow new fibers. How would you best describe or explain to parents why that the child's vision has improved? That's a really good point. We've made the same observation, and, and many others have, too. And uh, uh, before I explain why I, uh, this happens uh, as best I can, I, I, that's a further argument against, uh, a further ar- reason to be very careful with therapies that are not proven, because uh, the stem cell story is a, a very typical of that people went overseas, got stem cells, and their child's vision improved, and they attributed to the stem cell therapy that the child received when, in fact, other children improved without it. And um, uh, the and so studies on new therapies need to take that into consideration, and good studies can only be done when you have a control group that doesn't receive the therapy and you control and you then compare the group who received the therapy to the group that didn't receive the therapy because the ones who didn't receive the therapy also get better. Now, why do they get better? We know that they do not grow new fibers. And we know that uh, from studies we've just completed that are also coming out shortly that the there's absolutely no change in the size of the optic nerve um, oh, during this time. And so the um, I have two theories as to why vision improves. The first is that um, although we don't develop any new fibers after we're born, the fibers that we have when we're born are pretty immature, and they are not coated very much with the coating that they develop, which is called myelin, and it's akin to the plastic coating on a copper wire, and it makes the each fiber more efficient in its ability to transmit impulses. And that coating is laid down on the optic nerve over the first several years of life. And so it may just be that the optic nerve, the fibers that are still existing in the optic nerve, um, just become more efficient and better able to accurately transmit impulses and quickly do it, and, and that improves the vision. So that's one theory. The other theory is that the brain gets better at interpreting the images. And we know this happens. So, for instance, we know that um, we can see, many people can see better with two eyes than with one eye individually. And um, even though the vision is 20-20 in each eye by itself, together the two eyes may see 2015 or 2010, which is like supervision. And we also know that some people can see better than 2020. There's a famous story that Chuck Yeager could see 20 over 8, and which is like Superman vision, eagle vision. And when, in fact, the distance between the photoreceptors in the retina theoretically would not allow you to distinguish two spots uh, closer together than what you can see with 2020 vision. In other words, the theoretical limit of vision based on what our retina can see is 2020, yet many people can see better than 2020. And that's because the brain has processors in it, very much like a computer does, very much like these image enhancement uh, software that's used by law enforcement to, to, to figure out what a number on a license plate is from a blurry photograph that that looks at the surrounding pixels and determines what is the edge of the of this thing that you this blurry thing that you're looking at and turns it into a letter or a number 
And it, that process that the brain does is something that develops over time as we learn to see, as we get better and better in it. And then, so there's that can certainly play into uh, this uh, improvement in vision that occurs really pretty late into life. I used to think that these kids really couldn't improve beyond about five years of age. And now that I've followed them well into adulthood, some of them, uh, I've found that, in fact, their vision can improve really late. I mean, I've seen vision improve at 12, 13 years of age. And, uh, and so it must be that the brain is um, getting better at discriminating images. Now, I know that from a lot of the past studies that you have done, there has not been a conclusive cause. In other words, you have not found that it's because of genetics or it's not because of medications that a mother has taken or other types of factors that may have caused it. There is really no known cause of optic nerve hypoplasia. And can you just uh, quickly review that? Because there are so many times that I have mothers who come into our office and they are just weeping with this feeling of guilt that it was something they did wrong. They didn't take their maternal vitamins. They didn't eat the proper foods. Um, can you talk about that a bit? Yeah, that breaks my heart. You know, I, I got to say, mothers are the heroes of the world, but mothers bear so much of the guilt of society unfairly. I believe that this is this is a first of all, there is no mother on earth who caused this in her baby and the mothers who are listening need to know they didn't cause this. There's nothing they did. This it, that's not to say that it's not caused by something. I believe that if it's if it's not genetic and we look diligently for genetic causes and we've not been able to find one. Um, and in this day and age, you know, to not find a genetic cause is tantamount to saying there is none. Um, the, um, the, but it, but there must be a reason that this is increasing in uh, incidence. And so it must be something in the environment. And if it's something in the environment that's causing it, then we are all responsible, not the mothers. All of society is responsible. If we're not taking care of our environment, it's our problem. Now, we don't know what that is, okay? And it, it, that is a complicated process to narrow down causes. And I don't think it's going to be a single thing. I think it's going to be multifactorial. And I think you need to have the combination of things in the right place, the right time to have the perfect storm that's going to result in optic hypoplasia. And I, so I do think it's something, an exposure issue during early pregnancy, but it's nothing that the mothers could have prevented. Um, and uh, we need to work together to to make people aware of the fact that we have to be careful with our environment. And uh, and then we have to be, we have to do very, very careful epidemiologic research to not make mistakes and identify, misidentify something that's not causative. And um, so that kind of research is really hard, really, really hard. And um, uh, that is also something we're doing. Uh, it has been a very uh, uh, a tedious process. We have DNA taken from all of our uh, subjects in our study, and we turn that DNA over to researchers anywhere in the world who have a legitimate um, uh, uh, idea about what genetic cause there could be or what gene environment interaction there might be that they need to study. And uh, uh, so far, nobody's been able to 
find any common thread, but that's not to say it's not there, and we keep the DNA, and uh, hopefully, eventually, we will figure out what went wrong. But um, right now, uh, it's, it, it's, a, it's a frustrating pursuit. But it's so important. I, I appreciate you reminding the mothers that it is nothing that they have done. They have done nothing wrong. Right. No, that's so true. And, and and believe me, I mean, I think there's there is a there is a guilt gene in, that turns on during pregnancy. I swear to God, I've never seen a mother who didn't feel guilty about this. They all do, and it's, and it's so natural. But they shouldn't. And I just have to reassure them: it's not. There's nothing they did. Now, Dr. Borcher, what are your thoughts about nutritional supplements or eating particular types of fruits and vegetables and even uh, certain eye drops that might be beneficial in protecting uh, the remaining nerve fibers of the optic nerve? Okay. Um, I think that, you know, we lose nerve fibers beyond pregnancy. I talked about how we lose 70% of our fibers before we're even born, but the fact of the matter is that we don't stop losing them after we're born. The loss of them slows down. So if you look at the optic nerve of somebody who died in their 80s, they typically will have, instead of 1.2 million that they were born with, they'll typically have 800,000, 700,000 fibers. So we go on over the next 60 to 80 years of our lives and lose, you know, another 30 to 40% of our fibers um, and yet maintain pretty good vision. And we know that you can, if you have, for instance, a disease like glaucoma that kills optic nerve fibers, that you have to lose about half of the fibers from glaucoma before we can measure any change in your vision, even a change in just your peripheral vision. So the optic nerve is pretty robust and redundant in order to protect us from losing vision. But if you have somebody who starts with only, you know, 200,000 fibers in their optic nerve, like many kids with optic nerve hypoplasia, then, you know, a loss of 40% of your fibers over the remainder of your life is could have a bit much bigger impact than it would on somebody who started with 1.2 million fibers. And so you obviously want to take care of your optic nerve. So there are certain things that you should not do because there are certain things that we know damage the optic nerve. And first and foremost is smoking. You should never smoke. For lots of reasons, but this is another yet, yet another reason you shouldn't smoke, um, because smoking generates a lot of toxins that damage the optic nerve, and one of them is these you've heard of these free oxygen radicals that cause all kinds of problems, from arthritis to you know Crohn's disease to whatever. And this, this is, uh, but this also damages. The, this is one of the ways that
you should probably not be in a profession where you are around um, smoke. I'm not talking about cigarette smoke in this case. I'm talking about any kind of uh, smoke or um, burning. Uh, is not good. Um, and uh, I have no problem with um, taking vitamin supplements because there are some vitamins that, that taken in abundance are actually damaging to the optic nerve. And so, for instance, taking too much vitamin A or vitamin E uh, is dangerous. Um, uh, so... Um, I really don't have, I, I'm not an expert on uh, dietary supplements and uh, that sort of thing, but I think just common sense is what needs to be used here. And a healthy diet is a healthy diet, and that's really what you need to do. Yes, that's really great, great information. And I also just want to let the uh, listeners out there know that low vision aids, the different types of low vision aids that we do have available, including video magnifiers, computer screen magnification programs, these are, are very, very helpful for children and adults with optic nerve hypoplasia to be able to access their schoolwork and their work ahead. And I've seen some just amazing stories and seen many kids that I can't believe that they're now grown and married, and uh, when they were so much younger, we didn't know what was going to happen, and they're living life very well. At this time, Dr. Borchert, we've got about five minutes. Can you answer a couple of questions from the audience? Absolutely. Okay. If you have a question, would you unmute your phone by pressing star six, and uh, if you do not have a question, just hang on the line. Don't hang up so that we get a great recording. So if you do have a question for Dr. Mark Borchert, press star six, and you, you may announce your name and ask your question. Go ahead. Yes, my name is Christopher Saban, and I am president and founder of an organization called O1H Consulting. Actually, we're a for-profit firm. I've spoken with Dr. Borchert on uh, uh, many occasions at the uh, MAGIC conferences in uh, Chicago and, and different locations. Uh, I have a question that's uh, actually two questions. One is for Dr. Borchert, and uh, the other is uh, for Sue and, and his staff at the Braille Institute. Uh, my question for Dr. Borchert is, is I wanted to know if he could give us a status update on the uh, research you've been doing on the coral, on the connections between O1H and autism-related characteristics in some children with O1H. And my question for... Uh, Sue and Dr. Bill directly and your staff at the Braille Institute is, uh, have you considered doing a different presentation, a different topic altogether on the psychosocial, developmental, and educational aspects of uh, children with O1H or, or the impact of all of the information that Dr. Borchardt has talked about on uh, psychosocial, educational, and other developmental aspects of our kids? Um, I'll, I'll just Dr. bring it Dr. Borchardt. <laughs> okay. Well, Chris, it's good to hear from you. Um, so the, uh, yes, autism question. Um, right now, uh, the latest research which we've just published is basically just looking at what, what modifications we need to make in our current instruments neuropsychological instruments that we use to diagnose autism uh, and what modifications we have to make for the fact that these kids are visually impaired in order to diagnose them because we have found that many of them are misdiagnosed in both directions. They're almost equally misdiagnosed as autism when they don't have it as they are not having autism when they do have it. And so one of the issues is getting the instruments to be um, valid in kids with vision impairment, and that's a problem because much of the things, many of the tools they're using involve using your vision. So we've done these modifications, and and uh, so in a paper that just came out this week, um, uh, we show that you can modify the instruments and you can be pretty precise in making the diagnosis. That's just the first step. That's the first step. You can't determine 
who's going to get autism and who's not, and what percentage of kids are going to develop autism, what the risk factors are for autism, until you can be confident that you're making the right diagnosis in these children. And so we've got a long ways to go uh, to figure out what the links are and what the risk factors in kids with ONH are that, that predispose to having autism and what are the neurologic deficits, whether it's on an MRI scan or in some other physiologic parameter, um, put you at risk for having it. So, you know, your question is really super because uh, it, because it, it, it presupposes there's a neurologic basis for, for the autism in these kids that's unique to kids with own age, and that I believe that's true, but we have a long way to go to figure out what that is. And Chris, uh, to answer your, your second question, I think that's really a, a great topic that you brought up. And Sue and I, I think that we will probably plan to have that particular topic on the social economic types of uh, situation as it relates to optic nerve hypoplasia. So maybe if you could contact Sue and maybe you could uh, be part of this with us. Any other questions for Dr. Borcher? We've got about time for two more questions. I have one. Yes, go ahead, please. Thank you. My name is Misty, and I'm from Oklahoma, and my baby was just diagnosed with um, ONH last week. And when she told me about it, I asked her, I didn't really understand, and I wanted to know how much she could see. And she gave me a little looking glass, and it was basically nothing, and told me that's what she thought he could see. Um, but everything I've been reading is saying that you can't really tell what they can see. So did she tell me something wrong, or can you really tell how much a baby can see based on looking at that? Okay, that's a really good question. I I think Dr. Bills may answer that as well. I, I, I will, I'll take my first shot at it. First of all, I don't – I think it's, it's not – so important to worry about what your child can see when they're a new, I don't know how old your child is, but very young, obviously. Um, and um, doctors will try, often try to um, accommodate parents who really want to know this by making their best guess. But it's just okay. a guess. And um, it turns out, in my experience with optic nerve hypoplasia, what even with your best guess, it, it almost never is predictive of what they're going to see later on, and um, which is really what people really want to know. And um, so, uh, you know, and we have methods that give us a more precise measurement of what the baby is seeing. There are electrophysiologic measurements. There are some behavioral measurements that we use. But it really doesn't matter because none of them are very predictive of what the child's going to see later on. And so what the baby needs is love. Your baby needs it. All babies need the same thing regardless of what they see. They need your love. They need you to hold them. They need you to sing to them. They need you to talk to them. They need you to smile at them and play with them and feed them and keep them warm and happy. And they'll do fine. So... Um, don't worry about what your child sees right this moment. We're working on predicting what they're going to see in the long run. We don't have the answer yet, um, and that's the best I can say. <laughs> I would also agree with that. I think what's very important is that you would also read different types of literature, and Sue Parker from the Braille Institute, they have some very good uh, information that talks about how you can create a visually and an overall stimulating environment for your child. There's, there's many helpful tips, for example, if a child has reduced vision because of optic nerve hypoplasia or another type of condition, when you approach your, your baby to pick her up, it's good to talk to her first because if you don't, you may startle her. And some of these children become very, very frightened when they're being picked up. There's different levels of lighting and contrast so that your daughter would be able to use her remaining vision better 
if you do use the appropriate lighting and contrast. So as Dr. Borchett said, you know, it really is a team. You're going to have your ophthalmologist. You're going to need your pediatric neuro-ophthalmologist. You want an endocrinologist. You want a person such as Sue who's going to work on their early intervention and visual development. There's low-vision optometrists, so there's a really good team. And, and your daughter doesn't have to see all of these people all at once, but this team approach is going to be the best for her. And as Dr. Borchert said, we do see this all the time, that the child's vision measures something different at a later time. So you might want to contact Sue and get some of that kind of literature. And this, I'm sure that there are um, resources close to you, too, in early intervention, and we can certainly help you get connected to people who are close to you and kind of give you some ideas on play and just anything else that you have interest in. Um, yeah, but I think, you know, just overall development is really important, just overall play. Okay, we have uh, time for one last question. I have a question. Yes, go ahead, it's please. Leslie from Fortune. California. Can, Leslie from California, Sacramento, California. Can you talk a little bit about optic nerve hypoplasia and the connection between cortical visual impairment? Um, sometimes I see kids that have very similar signs, and it's it's kind of a struggle to kind of weed out um, the two. So any connections between the two, please? Uh, happy to talk about that. Um, yeah, this has been uh, – it has been suggested uh, that, in fact, um, much of the uh, improvement in vision in kids with optic nerve hypoplasia is due to actually improvement in cortical visual impairment, which may be superimposed because the kids do have neurologic problems often, and that that may contribute to a superimposed cortical visual impairment. Nobody's been able to show that that's the case, and 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 the experience of lots of people is that you know a lot of the techniques that we use. Uh, to help kids with cortical visual impairment seem to also work in children with optic nerve hypoplasia because there's so much overlap or whether or not these kids actually have superimposed cortical visual impairment, I don't know. Uh, it is actually something we are looking at uh, uh, right now to see whether or not the feature, the, 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 the associated problems that may cause cortical visual impairment are more prevalent in those who have improvement in their vision than those who don't. So um, uh, we don't know if they have cortical visual impairment or not, um, and uh, we just, uh, I think, you know, have to stay tuned. Um, um, but there's certainly a lot of reasons to suspect that that may be a component of the vision impairment in these kids. Well, this has been just absolutely incredible information. Thank you very much, Dr. Borchard. And yeah. uh, do you yeah. have a contact information that if anybody either wants to contact you or donate to the Optic Nerve Research Program at Children's Hospital, do you have any type of contact information you could share? Um, yeah, if you uh, just go to... Um uh, the Vision Center at Children's Hospital Los Angeles, there are links um, there uh, to our, um, our ONH portal, um, and this ONH portal has uh, information about uh, resources in your local community. It also has um, uh, information about uh, ongoing research. Uh, and at the Vision Center website um, at Children's Hospital Los Angeles, there's a, a, a donation button as well that you can um, target the donation specifically to ONH research or to stem cell research or whatever. Great, great. And so that is the Vision Center Children's Hospital Los Angeles. Uh, people could Google that and find that. And, Sue, what is your contact information, please? Yes, um, uh, my email address is sparker-strafasi, and that's S-T-R-A-F as in Frank, A-C-I, at BrailleInstitute.org. Great. Thank you very much. 
Sure. And uh, we'd also like to thank Mr. Dick Burden from Airs LA. This particular recording, it is going to be on both the Airs LA webpage at www.airsla.org and also on the webpage at brailleinstitute.org. So you could share this with others who weren't able to attend and maybe you want to refer back to this. And I'd also recommend that you share this podcast maybe with your child's pediatrician or your child's teacher because maybe many of them have not had the opportunity to hear Dr. Borchard speak. So, again, want to thank you very much, Dr. Borchard. And, Sue, what do we have uh, next month? Well, next month it's October 8th, and same time, same place. Uh, it will, you'll be covering um, issues related to glaucoma and cataracts, some of the overview of that, uh, those conditions. Okay, great. Well, thank you again very, very much, Dr. Borchert. We really appreciate it, and we hope Me to have too. you back soon.